Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. We're also joined remotely by Andrea Enria, who spoke to us last week at the FT Banking Summit about the future of regulation. This week, we'll be discussing that regulatory future, particularly the breakdown or apparent breakdown of relations between the EU and US. Secondly, a look at the future of Goldman Sachs International as the co-head of that business, Michael Sherwood, retires. And finally, a look at Lloyds Bank as it is poised to acquire a $7 billion book of credit card business. First, though, to that topic of international regulation. The whole homogeneity of global banking rules has been thrown into question by a series of events. Martin, the latest one is a rather unexpected intervention by Brussels to demand of US banks that they set up the same type of holding company structures in Europe that the US is demanding of foreign banks there. Yeah, so there's a whole raft of announcements coming out of Brussels this week. Essentially, they are updates to the Capital Requirements Directive and also the Bank Resolution Rules. And the key new thing in there is a proposal to introduce something very similar to a rule that already exists in the US, to force foreign banks with large operations in Europe to set up holding companies for those operations with their own allocated capital and presumably an independent board of directors. And that's something that the US introduced a couple of years ago, and it raised hackles at the time in Europe. So this is very much seen as a tit-for-tat response by Europe. And it could, of course, hit UK banks as well, because in just over a couple of years, it's quite likely we'll be out of the EU, and therefore UK banks with large operations in the bloc will be considered foreign banks and therefore may have to set up their own holding companies. So they would have trapped capital potentially in the EU post-Brexit, as well as potentially in the UK if they've got operations here. Yeah, in theory, this shouldn't matter too much because regulators should consider the capital that banks have raised in aggregate rather than looking at sliced up parts of the bank. And if they consider overall, the number should be in line with the requirements. However, what banks worry about is if you force them to allocate capital to geographical parts of their businesses, each regulator in those regions will require a top up and add on an extra buffer. And it will lead to inefficiencies. In other words, there'll be double counting, they'll have to hold extra levels of capital and that will be expensive. Well, let's bring in Caroline here to put this in the broader context. In many ways, this is just further illustration of the whole process of balkanization, the jargon term that people use for a kind of breakdown of that global drive for rules and a kind of open-minded global approach to regulation generally. Maybe before I come to you, Caroline, we should play a snippet 
that Andrea Enria gave you when you interviewed him last week at the FT Global Banking Summit, talking about the future of global regulation. Uh, what I think is that uh, we need to press ahead with the financial reforms. We are still implementing the decisions of the G20 leaders of 2009, so we need to complete the package and move ahead. We are, of course, discussing a very difficult package now at the Basel Committee level, but I, I'm confident we will find an agreement there, and I think it is important to have a global standards that uh, underpin uh, cross-border banking. Uh, we need this now more than ever. So, Caroline, how do you see it? Is Andrea Enria's vision still credible? Can we still proceed on a global basis? Well, just to go bigger picture, I think there have been increasing tensions across the Atlantic. If you think about the Google and Amazon and Apple tax dispute versus then the DOJ taking rather a heavy-handed approach against Deutsche Bank, there are then these questions as to what the US will be like under a President Trump who has already expressed some cynicism about international fora generally, you know, be it NATO, whatever. So questions over how willing the US is going to be under the new administration to accept rules from Basel or whether it will be taking a bit more of a questioning approach. I mean, to be honest, the US have always taken a bit of an ambivalent approach to what Basel has put out. I mean, if you read Andrea's comments in that kind of context, I think it might be slightly wishful thinking to think that this post-financial crisis global consensus that's built up will continue. I mean, I think, first of all, memories have faded quite quickly, politically speaking, since the financial crisis. So whereas in 2008, 2009, governments around the world were united as to what needed to be done, in various regions around the world, we've got, first of all, different interest rates, we've got different political opinions as to what needs to be done. So I think for that reason, we're seeing the fracturing as well. In terms of what's happening next week, it is true that there might be this showdown between the US and the EU in very crude terms, that is. I mean, it's obviously a bit more complicated than that. And that goes to whether there are going to be caps or output flaws on the extent to which banks can use their own models to determine riskiness. The US afford these output flaws. The Europeans say they would disadvantage their balance sheet disproportionately. And this is, of course, the so-called Basel IV rulebook, which Andrea Enria was talking about needing substantial change, I think, but only, I guess, saying that pragmatically, because if there isn't substantial change, it's just not going to happen. Let's move on to our second topic. Goldman Sachs International, Laura, is going to be under new management. Michael Sherwood, the co-chief of that business, has retired after something like 30 years at the bank. I say under new management, he was running that business jointly with Richard Nodder, who's now going to run it on a sole basis. So does it matter? Um, I think it matters in terms of the bank's profile here because Michael Sherwood was a big figure in the city. He was obviously at the bank for a very long time, 31 years. So he set a tone and he was very public on some issues, particularly on the Brexit issue. So I think probably Goldman isn't going to be as in the news here when it doesn't have him. But I mean, given the year that uh, Goldman has had, I think they would quite welcome being in the news a bit less. Well, yes, Goldman historically has very much liked to be out of the news. And I guess Michael Sherwood didn't exactly fulfil that mission when he appeared in front of a parliamentary select committee a few months ago over the whole BHS scandal. That scandal, of course, was related to the High Street store under the ownership of Sir Philip Green, the way that he then sold it to a three times bankrupt and was advised unofficially during that process by Goldman Sachs. 
Yeah, I mean, that was pretty damaging in lots of ways. I mean, he admitted the bank had damaged its reputation by its involvement in the BHS situation. And he also managed to, I think, anger some of the parliamentarians there. But I guess, I mean, in his defence, he was asked to appear. It isn't as if he actually volunteered to appear. And I think he would certainly rather have not appeared. So, Martin, if you look back over his career, we spent some time talking to him yesterday. He was fairly open and fulsome in his declarations of his career. He obviously acknowledged that this was a low point, but I think he said that of his 30 years, something like only five had been difficult years and the rest had been great. What's your assessment? He was one of the youngest ever at Goldman Sachs to be promoted to partner at the age of only 28. And that was a move that was to rehire him to the bank, interestingly. He left once before, back in 1994, when he left briefly to run a hedge fund for a Swiss bank. And Goldman, a week later, lured him back with the promise of partnership at the age of only 28. So he was a bit of a star from a young age. But I think three possible interpretations on his departure. One is that it was related to the bad publicity the bank got over BHS and him being dragged before a parliamentary committee to be grilled over that. And we know that some of the emails he and others in his team sent to members of Sir Philip Green's team were frowned upon internally. Second interpretation, Brexit. Goldman was one of the biggest backers of the Remain campaign, Woody, as he's known, Michael Sherwood was an outspoken defender of the UK staying in, and now the bank needs to readapt to the new situation. And finally, I think there is another interpretation, which is he very much represents the city, uh, old school fixed income trader. And Goldman is slowly shifting, perhaps away from the city towards being a more multi-location bank in Europe and perhaps shifting slightly away from its trading routes to more investment banking advisory. I mean, the US, it's launched a digital consumer bank. So Goldman is changing. Perhaps Woody represents the past and not the future. Perhaps indeed. And we'll see what he goes on to do next. He was talking about his charitable work to us yesterday, but I'd be very surprised if he doesn't launch some kind of, maybe goes back to the hedge fund idea of uh, 30 years ago. Let's move on to our third topic of the day. Lloyd's is back in the business of M&A, Emma, looking at a pretty chunky acquisition in the credit card space. Yes, so Lloyd's Banking Group is once again at the fore of a bidding process for MBNA's £7 billion UK credit card business. And this is really part of a broader strategy for Lloyd's, whereby it's looking to grow in parts of the market where it's quite underserved. So it's um, the UK's biggest mortgage lender and constitutes about 25% of the market. And it also has a significant presence in current accounts and savings. But it is, in fact, below its natural market share for areas such as credit cards. And this is at a time where margins are arguably under pressure for all UK banks due to the record low interest rate. And for Lloyds, they're looking to preserve this by seeding some of their market share in mortgages, preserving net interest margin and looking to grow in areas where they can perhaps boost margins such as credit cards. Yeah, because, of course, credit cards is a potentially very lucrative space. What about the timing of the acquisition though, Martin? Because in terms of customer defaults, it must be running at record low levels given where pressures are elsewhere in the economy. Consumers generally feeling like their debt servicing is quite easy to manage in the mortgage space and so on. Credit card rates don't tend to go up and down very much in line with the interest rate cycles. So they're able to preserve margins pretty well. Average rates, I think, are 18% uh, time when you think central bank interest rates in the UK are 025 It's a nice business to be in. But it won't always be like that. We're arguably at a turning point. 
Yeah, they're moving up the risk curve at a time when defaults are at near record lows. So that's interesting. But I think there are obviously fears about the UK economy and fears that it could slow down. But there aren't predictions of a massive increase in unemployment. And defaults tend to be linked to unemployment. People default on their loans, particularly unsecured credit card debt, when they lose their jobs, typically. So that's the risk. If there is a big uptick in unemployment, then Lloyds will have got this one wrong. But I don't think they believe, or many economists believe, there will be a surge in unemployment anytime soon. Two other interesting points about the timing. One is that the bank is attractive to investors and one of the few banks trading at or above its book value because it is promising to pay out strong dividends. It was once the biggest dividend payer in the FTSE 100 and it's aiming to get back to that. When our story came out on Monday, shares in Lloyd's fell a bit, more than 1%. And I think that reflects concern that instead of paying out excess capital through dividends, and perhaps even a special dividend some investors have hoped for, Lloyd's will spend it instead on acquisitions like MBNA. Secondly, the interesting point is that the government is in the process of selling down its stake in Lloyd's. It still owns just under 8% after on Tuesday morning announcing that it has sold down another chunk through this drip feed program where it's just selling the shares into the market steadily. So clearly a big acquisition like this where Lloyd's could increase its exposure to payment protection insurance compensation, which has already cost the bank some £17 billion could have an impact on the shares and therefore could be disruptive to this dribble out process that the shares are being sold in and could also affect the dividends. But I think it does fit with Lloyd's strategy. So you can see why they're probably going to press ahead with it as long as the price isn't too high. A final word maybe from Emma on the consumer side of this, because that's an area that you've worked in before looking at consumer finance. I just wonder from that point of view, Emma, As you said, they're very keen to up their market share in this business to a level which would actually be on a par with their stake of the current account market, the mortgage market, higher than 25%. Now, there are other credit card companies, notably Barclaycard in this market, that has nearly 30% market share. Just wonder from a consumer point of view, if you've got two companies, if they have 26% or whatever, you've got more than 50% of the market in the hands of two banks. Is that a healthy state of affairs? What are consumer groups likely to think about that? Well, this is definitely another issue that perhaps could come under the uh, remit of the Competition and Markets Authority, because as you say, there'll be two banks that essentially dominate the credit card market. And already we've had earlier this year the CMA's long-awaited review into the arguably lack of competition in the UK's retail banking market based on the fact that the big four, Barclays, Royal Bank of Scotland, HSBC and Lloyds Banking Group, do dominate the current account market. So that is one issue. But it's also worth pointing out that the Financial Conduct Authority has also raised concerns about the credit card market due to its exponential growth rate essentially over the past few years and how more consumers are using credit cards now as a sort of longer term form of debt which is perhaps quite dangerous. So in that sense, the FCA has also got its eye on this part of the market. Alternatively, you could argue that credit card growth has a long way to go in the UK, especially compared to the size of the US market. So um, yeah, certainly one to watch. Yeah, I think there's 65 billion of debt in the UK credit card market and 1 trillion in the US credit card market. So yeah, long way to go. Thank you for that, Emma. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Laura, Caroline and Emma here in the studio. Also, thanks to Andrea Inria from the European Banking Authority, who was our interview guest. 
And thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. I'm Andrea, founder of a boutique handbag brand, Andy, and this is why I switched to Shopify. I tried three other platforms prior to Shopify, and I remember my breaking point was when I would try to make one little change and my entire site would go down. Shopify made it really easy for me to shift everything over and hit the ground running. I was able to migrate my products and all of my customer information over. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com listen. Go to shopify.com listen to take your business to the next level today. 